Hello, and welcome back to another Dispatches from Holly McKay. So Holly is uh, recently went to Ukraine and is now back in the United States. And today we're going to talk about what that experience was like while she was there and uh, what it was like when she left Kiev and came back to the U.S. So good morning, Holly. And how are you today? I'm doing fine. So, yes, I originally went to Kiev as tensions were building at the end of January. And um, I took a week off in the middle of it as this sort of chaos ended up happening that week and made my way back at the at the end of February. So it's it's been a, um, a, a draining couple of months, to say the least. And, yeah, just a, a, a very different, um, you know, leaving a very different Kiev to the one that I went into. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and and for those that are are interested, uh, there are previous Substack interviews with Holly about her time uh, on the first trip and also her return to Kiev. So you can look those up in the Substack. So what this time you get to Kiev and it's a very very different place from the one that you left. Uh, the the war is on and you've made your way in. So. Tell us a little bit about what you found when you got there in terms of how the place had changed in the space of really only a couple of weeks. Right. So I got back in right after the invasion, which was a, oh, that was an effort in itself, obviously, when you can't fly into a place anymore. And you know, there's a lot of concern about what, you know, where the Russians were located. There were a lot of all these news reports that were insisting that that Kiev was completely surrounded and it was impossible and it was completely besieged and it was possible, impossible to get in. And, and when I talked to people on the ground who said, no, 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 I'm sending someone to pick you up from the Hungarian border. And, you know, I got in fights with, you know, friends of mine in the United States that are like, no, I'm in contact with, you know, every intelligence person and they're saying it's impossible to go in and out of Kiev. And so it just sort of shows you, I guess, the fog of war, the misinformation, um, you know, people are believing one thing when that, in fact, is not the reality. And so, um, you know, I luckily didn't listen to that and, you know, went with the people that were there and were actually on the ground that were insisting to me that that there was a way in and out and that it was okay, you know. So I, if I'd just been listening to to what the news reports were telling me, I would have probably said, oh, okay, well, I can't go then. Um, so it, it just sort of goes to show you that, that there, unfortunately, there is so much sort of misinformation that gets kind of twisted and lost in in the narrative and and as it as it was shown you know Kiev wasn't completely surrounded um as as reports at the time were sort of suggesting so when I got back I mean it was just an absolute ghost city there were very few journalists there really just the ones that had been there for um a significant period of time and you know I got to the hotel that I always stay in and and really, there was there was no nobody there. Um, I met one other Western journalist um, who who was staying there, and that was sort of about it. Other than that, it was just you know families that were kind of on their way to to flee. So it was it was very unsettling, and you know you definitely have to question you know what am I doing here? Um, but as the week kind of went on, a lot of foreign journalists then started to come from France and from other parts of Europe, really, and and then I saw other Americans start to arrive and different medical groups things so the atmosphere kind of built um up a lot in that sort of ensuing week but definitely initially it was it was a a very kind of strange and and lonely time sort of covering this war and not really knowing what was going to happen um and then it you know the then suddenly sort of the intention 
attention came back on it and and there seemed to be a lot more people and they opened a media center downstairs and and they were bringing Russian POWs to the hotel, um, which concerned me a little bit from a safety point of view because they were you know, doing these press conferences every day with these, these POWs downstairs and, and where the hotel was located was, you know, right sort of across from a military hospital. And I thought, you know, this isn't a particularly safe place to be because, you know, if they do try to hit that military hospital, which there's a good chance that they will because Russia, um, you know, that's one of the key places it hits um, and they're not exactly on point with that. So, you know, the hotel could become collateral damage. So there, there were a lot of factors that that kind of went into my concerns in, in continuing to, to be there, but also sensing the importance of being there. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, um, and it certainly was. So that takes us to the job of reporting while you were there. So you got yourself quickly, very deeply into the things that were going on. I recall from the stories that you were filing at the time that you were talking, not just out in the field, but also talking to the government. What was the reporting like once you were in country and uh, started doing your job? So it, again, you know, it, it was at first, I mean, it was just, it was so quiet. There were so, I think, few journalists there. Um, and it, 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 it was just, it was a very different environment. It was very hard to get hold of drivers and, and fixers and all the, the people that we, we really rely on to, to work with us in country. And, and I was alone. I didn't have a photographer or, or anybody else, in, you know, with me. And so um, that was always a little bit daunting when you are sort of in charge of, of all your logistics and, and sort of having to do everything yourself and trying to find the right people. And on my first day back in, I got badly burned. So um, that sort of made my job a little bit more challenging because then I was trying to get to hospitals every day to ensure that the burns were not going to get infected and, you know, struggling to walk a little bit. So um, it was certainly, you know, there was just challenges from many different fronts uh, for me that I hadn't, hadn't quite anticipated, but, um, but once we sort of got into the swing of things, it was really just a matter. And, and I'm really grateful the fact that I had really invested time in being in Ukraine prior to the invasion happening because I had a lot of on the ground contacts. I had people at, at mobile hospitals. I had people in the government. I had people that were Zelensky's advisors. I had people that were in the territorial defenses. And, and so I was just able to to kind of work with a lot of the contacts that I already had um, to kind of point me in the right direction and, and get me the right people that I needed to be around and, and really just get the ground running. And it was one of those situations where you really don't know day by day where you're going to end up or where you're going to be or, you know, what sort of the story is. And, and my approach um, maybe it's a little bit different to a lot of journalists in that I, I really try to avoid the pack journalism. I try to, I don't, I'm not necessarily the person that runs around chasing the breaking story of the day. Um, I think to do that, you really have to sort of have a team of people to do that. You have to have 
you know, somebody that's on standby to drive, you have to have, um, you know, your translators all lined up. You have to have people in different places if you are kind of embarking on a little bit more of that breaking news beat. Um, but being sort of a lone journalist, um, you know, I, I really sort of see it as my job to go in and just to kind of put a human face on the war, so to speak, to really talk to the people on the ground, to talk to people from so many different walks of life and and try to tell their stories and and paint a really different picture rather than sort of chasing the news. We can we can all get the news from from the, the AP wire, but but to really get um, I guess to really bring people into that fold and and that's sort of how how I see the my role in what I can bring to the table. So it, it may not work for a lot of news outlets. It may not be the sort of the sexy, salacious headline all the time, but to me it's 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 taking on a, a slightly sort of different approach and and just um as I as I say it's always about taking these micro stories and painting a macro picture and I think that's something that we can all relate to no matter where we are we can relate to sort of the idea of human suffering of, of you know children of orphans of um you know men you know being out to fight all night we we can take those individual stories and sometimes when we try to look at the big picture um things can get a little bit lost yeah yeah, speaking of, of things getting a, a little bit lost as you as you covered things at the micro level, um, I mean you're also keeping track of the larger stories that are going on in the in in the in the theater, and um, yeah, so this is a war where there's been a lot of spin put on by both sides in in the conflict to you know, bring favorable, favorable press and, and favorable stories uh, to, to them. And in many cases to sell their side of the war to uh, constituents, how close were the micro stories that you found to the stories that were being spun by, you know, the propaganda arms of, of both sides. And, you know, how, how would you say that what you were doing added more color to what was really happening at the ordinary people level? Uh, you know, again, it's it's the ordinary people that are being thrust into extraordinary situations. I mean, nobody, um, you know, is running around wearing a cape pretending to be some sort of hero. But I, I think that, I mean, we can all we can all sort of look at a picture of a of what it must be like to to have to flee your home with nothing more than a plastic bag or you know just to lose everything that you have or just there there are just so many nuggets of things that you know and it can really show that can happen to to everyone and again you know it's very unfortunate that there there is so much propaganda out there um you know, and, and it does come from both sides, but clearly it comes from the Russian side a lot more fervently than it comes from the Ukrainian side. And and also on that note, I'm also kind of um, a little bit perplexed of, of, of people that keep saying, I don't trust the media. I don't, you know, again, this isn't new. Um, these situations of disinformation happen constantly. You know, it's Russia's skill set to sow disinformation, to sow chaos, um, to make you not believe in anything, um, which we saw, you know, even in Afghanistan and other places. And it isn't new. Um, and I think the distrust that comes from the mainstream media, while I do understand it, there are a lot of incredible journalists out there that really were putting, you know, their lives on the line 
um, you know, Clarissa at CNN, you had Trey at Fox, and you had people in BBC, and you have people, you know, that they're they're risking their lives to come and deliver this information. And so, for people to kind of turn around and say, "I don't trust any of these people," I, I find that to be a little bit um, a little bit far fetched, to be honest with you. And and I really hate using um, this term too much, but but there there are situations in life when you neutrality is complicity and i really feel that this is one of them the people that that don't want to get involved or don't want to condemn russia or say they're you know this is a situation where a sovereign country was invaded um with no provocation and are absolutely you know slaughtering innocent people and you know that that requires people to stand up and say something and when you know i'm hearing all this feedback from people of i don't believe this and that and I just think that's such a crying shame and that's a shame on you because you're not doing your research well enough okay well um so let's um I think people listening to this would would appreciate this very much let's talk about some poignant moments that you encountered because you know it's I I I know you're reporting style and I I also know you as a friend and I know that you're a very observant person and it's in your quietest moments that you pick up the most interesting things. So what are the poignant moments that you found while you were just sitting there watching this all go on? I mean, there were so many, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, I guess this is a sort of part of our society is, is I think people struggle to see animals when they're hurt or, um, you know, caught in the crossfire of war. So one of the saddest parts for me was when I was on the Irpine Bridge, um, it was very chaotic sort of during the evacuation times and people just that had literally just been in their bunkers for for days and and had no food and no water and no electricity and they're being sort of dragged out and they're confused and there's an incredible amount of bombing and um you know artillery hitting very close and i remember just sort of being on the bridge and and there was this little dog that was bleeding and wounded and shaking under a tree and and at that point the artillery was hitting very very close and you know people were screaming at me to keep running and I was just seeing this dog and I just being devastated because I needed to take this dog. And I was with a medical team and, you know, Agor is looking at me and he's yelling, holy, holy. And I'm crying and he's trying to pull me away and telling me, you know, I, I can't take the dog and I'm begging to take the dog. And, and it just, you know, was just so sad. And I, I took a photo of the dog and I later found out that that dog was the belonged to the family that had been killed on the bridge the day before, just, um, you know, time mom and, and her children and a neighbor who had been killed and, and that was their dog. But I also found out later that the dog had, um, you know, someone had taken the dog to a vet. So that was, that was a relief. But I think it's just stories like that when you, you feel, um, you know, very helpless in these situations and, not really able to do anything. And, 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 you know, that, that was, that was uh, just one of those moments of, you know, I had to obey the, I guess the sort of the wishes of the medical team that I was with. And that was that I had to keep running and not take the dog. But um, I think that's always a lot uh, hard for us who, you know, who love animals and, and, and love people and to, to kind of just, have to follow that at times and and that's sort of the sad that's the sad part of war and just um just watching um a lot of the really 
most vulnerable people in society that were just desperately trying to to escape and then they had nowhere to go um they didn't have anything with them they didn't know what you know the next day was going to bring and 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 even when they're being rescued from these places it's not rescued to safety it's rescued to displacement and more artillery and more bombing and and more confusion and it's just it's so hard I think for us in our safe worlds to to wrap our heads around you know Ukraine was a safe place too um you know and suddenly all of that that blanket literally overnight was just was ripped from them and just how agonizing I think that is it's 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 hard to it's hard to imagine how how that can happen and and how quickly that can happen so um just sitting with people is is just one of those really um jarring things I think and then you know it's another time when I met a woman um, who'd just come out of uh, being sort of rescued and, and she was with a newborn baby and the baby was about, I think it was nine days old and she'd had to have her baby in the middle of, um, you know, bombing and artillery and, and she'd had to leave her two other children behind uh, with family members. And so then when she'd gone to the hospital to have her baby the Russians had overtaken the village that she was living in with her other children there and so you know as soon as she could get out of this hospital she had gone into you know to in one of these humanitarian corridors um, with her baby and with no idea of how or when she would ever see her other two children again um, because they were now stuck under Russian occupation so it's just moments like that that you just it's hard to really fathom how how this is all happening. Mm, yeah, very sad. Um, let's move on. Um, you know, because um, um, or 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 before we move on, just a, a little moment to honor that all those people are in fact suffering. But as you noted, you know, and when all is said and done, this gigantic Russian army continues to draw closer and closer and uh, at a certain point um they you know they're 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 at the gates of all these cities and as of today they're inside the gates of uh, one of uh, ukraine's cities that has been holding out mariupol and um so at a certain point it starts to become very very dangerous and and maybe too dangerous to to be around and you know what was your calculus on that and um and was that a factor in, you know, you're making the decision that it was time to take a break from all of this? Or was it other stuff um, that, that, that caused you to, to say it's time to take a break? I think, you know, multiple things. I don't, I mean, the danger level is certainly high. Um, you know, that's the other interesting aspect of war too, is how quickly you and everyone else around you just adapts to explosions and, and um, you know, artillery. And it's, you know, even now <laughs> hearing a thud, you know, you just, nobody even reacts anymore so um it's just you know it's the side note of just how interesting that is how quickly you just adapt to it um but i mean the danger level is obviously high i don't know that that was my main um point i think a lot of us journalists who had sort of been covering it really since january were kind of all in the same sort of rotation of needing a break and i think it's important to always have a clear mind to make the best decisions that you can um, in these 
in these situations, you, you, you know, and when you're getting probably two hours of sleep a night, um, it's not always, you know, it's unclear if you, if you can make the best decisions or not. Um, I think for me, I, my, my biggest concern was, you know, in, in, in talking to people that had been under Russian occupation of losing um, comms and, and electricity and, or having, you know, the first thing you do is take your phone. They certainly wouldn't take kindly to an American. Um, but, but I thought, you know, if the comms go down, then, then I can't get the story out. So that concerned me a lot and not really having, again, being alone as a writer, not really having a sort of a structured, um, I guess, team or support system on the ground meant that if things did, you know, if Kiev was suddenly, you know, flattened or, um, the Russians had managed to come into Kiev, my concern was that I knew that when shit hits the fan, you know, everybody's going to be preoccupied with their own thing. And I didn't feel confident um, in I would have a, a sort of a, a support system or, or a safe escape. So it essentially would completely come down to me. And I didn't feel comfortable that I had, um, you know, a lot of the exit plans that I'd had with other people, um, unfortunately, sort of changed. And that was a concern to me as I, the people sort of that I thought that I could rely on, I quickly realized that I couldn't. So um, it kind of made sense to, to be able to get out while the train was still running, um, you know, to go out by car, uh, you know, ch- foreigners are being charged a lot of money, um, which would have, <laughs> you know, it's not sort of the, the struggle with being an independent journalist is, you know, you don't have a network backing, you don't have copious amounts of money to, to be able to, afford um, drivers and, and other things so I needed to to make that decision to take the train while it was still running um, because once the train if the train stops running uh, sort of to the west to Lviv then then that would certainly be um, you know uh, another kind of impediment that I would have to somehow try to overcome um, so there are certainly advantages to being an independent journalist but there are certainly disadvantages too in that you just don't have the the same support structure that you may have when you're you're with the team or you sort of got backing um, so yeah that was a sort of it was more a logistical decision that I, I had to make more so than being concerned about the danger level. I think, I think the danger level um, has been high from the beginning and that's certainly something that I, I accept. Um, and that's part of my job, but I also um, just sort of had concerns about, about sort of some of the logistical exits if, if need be, if the situation escalated. Yeah. Well, um, it, well, you know, so over the years, for for people listening, you, you know, I've um, I've talked to you in many different parts of the world, and um, where where you've gone into pretty dangerous places, and uh, I, I did notice that this was one of those times where you weren't quite sure what the way out was. Where um, it. I think the closest thing to it was your recent experience in Afghanistan, where there were a number of days where you weren't quite sure how you were going to get out. But I wanted to focus a little bit on, you know, you know, glossing over. You you had fellow journalists there that were part of, uh, you know, people that you knew because they were part of uh, the company that you worked for previously, and um, on a, at the human level, uh, losing that 
um, which was right before you left. Um, did that affect you in any way? I mean, certainly did. And, and you know, we talked in the last Substack about Pierre, the cameraman who was sadly killed. And, you know, he was someone that I checked in with frequently and, you know, had, was willing to sort of help me evacuate if need be. And we had sort of plans and, and somebody who was extremely um, supportive of me. So, you know, when Pierre was killed, that was obviously just a massive devastation um, in in many ways. Um, just, you know, first and foremost, because he was such a wonderful, kind human. Um, so, yeah, so that, I don't know. You know, I think certainly, you know, everyone's always concerned about journalists and, and safety and, and and all of that. But I think... I think you know we no, no story no stories worth a life, but at the same time, we do this job because we believe in the story. So, um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know from you know the danger point of view that that affected me in in not wanting to to be there or to cover it because I still very firmly believe um, in, in telling these stories, and I think that Russia tries to drive out journalists so that it's easier for them to sort of come in and, and do horrible things without that public accountability. So I, I do see journalism as being a really important factor in that. Um, and that's certainly something that, that I think those of us who choose to do this work um, have to make peace with. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So you've made the decision to leave. Um, and the journey begins, as you said, it starts on a train. What was that journey like? You know, what, what, how did that, what path did it go? How, how difficult was was it? Yeah. I mean, that was just sort of a heinous journey. So you just basically show up at the railway station. There's just a bunch of people that nobody knows what time the train is going to come. You know, it might be scheduled to come at two, but it's probably going to arrive two or three hours later. So you're basically just standing around a train station with a whole flock of people, not knowing how many people actually going to get on the train or what, what's going to happen, where it's going. Nobody had any idea how long it would take. Um, it was just, you know, and, and, and we were sort of very ill-prepared because we kind of made that last-minute decision to get on the train while the train was still running as the, the city was sort of going into, into curfew lockdown for um, we weren't at that point sure how long that the lockdown would be. So they just sort of had a, a mass of people at the station, um, obviously mostly women and children because the men have to stay um, and then, you know, you're kind of just waiting and then the train comes and everybody sort of just runs. And so, um, I was able to get on the train and, and fortunately, you know, find a, a little area that I could sit for a little while, but, um, we sort of had to give that up, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it was a really sort of sad environment. You're looking at just a bunch of, of people that are exhausted. Um, they don't know really what they're doing or where they're going. You know, there was two little young girls across, they're probably about 15 across from me and they were just bawling their eyes out. Um, and so, you know, it's just this terror crowded sort of environment, everybody sitting in between the carriages, um, people sitting on the floor, um, you know, there's no food, there's no drink, there's no toilet. So the journey ended up taking about, I think it was about 15, 16 hours um, because the train sort of went all the way down south and then turned up sort of then to go west. So, yeah, so I'm sort of standing basically on a train um, for 
15 hours and yeah, there's no, there's no food, no water, no toilet and, and no idea what time I'm going to get there to Lviv. Um, and so it was just the uncertain and, you know, I was a bit of a mess on the train myself, just not knowing where I was going. Was I making the right decisions? Did I need to go back? Um, you know, what was sort of happening. So it was a, it was not a pleasant journey. And then unfortunately sort of when I was in Lviv, I got there, it was three o'clock in the morning. And, and luckily I had, a, you know, I found a, a medic um, American guy who was able to sort of help me a little bit because I really had no other help. I had nowhere to go. I had no driver. I had nowhere to stay. Um, every lead that I'd sort of tried to pursue um, kind of went dead. Um, so I, yeah, it was just a not, it, it was really a, a, a not, um, not pleasant, but, you know, obviously we, we get through it and, and, you know, my experience is compared to what most people are going through and nothing, but it was certainly, um, it was certainly not, uh, not the easiest kind of way to, to try to get out. That's for sure. Yeah. So from, from Lviv, you went then across the border well, yeah, and then that's still another couple of hours to sort of get to the border. So thank goodness for this this person that I just met who was able to help me and, you know, shows you the kindness of strangers because, you know, I would have been in a lot of – it would have been very screwed and, and horrible um, had I not met, um, you know, this person who sort of took me under their wing and were able to help me and and, and I was able to go with them. And, and then when you get to the border, it's just a complete mess. And then the border, you know, it's freezing and it's four o'clock in the morning and it, the border's on lockdown because of air raids. So the air raid sirens are going off, but yet there's no bunker to go to. So you sort of just, the whole thing is just very confusing. Um, and then you try to cross and then there's these masses of lines and people are yelling and that, you know, had all these people yelling at me in Ukrainian. I didn't know what was going on. It was just, the whole thing was a nightmare from start to finish. And, and luckily, you know, again, you know, with the help of a stranger, um, I was able to get some support, but, but without that, I can just imagine, you know, it was an exhausting, um, unclear you know uncertain I was riddled with guilt on leaving I hadn't slept for many many days and and um it, you know I didn't have the appropriate I wasn't dressed appropriately for the weather and there's just there was many factors that kind of went into it um yeah it was certainly it was certainly a, a challenging sort of um way to cross and it reinforced <coughs> to me the importance of uh, reinforced me the importance of you know having some sort of structured teamwork and and being a, you know the, the challenges that come when you are alone um and having a support system that you can rely on even when you know you are a writer and you don't necessarily need to be in a team but from a logistical point of view it's it's just something um that's really really hard to do I think and and it's important to sort of have that support network somehow of of people that can can kind of get you from A to B because um, that was certainly probably the, the biggest struggle of all of it compared to um, it was like the sort of getting out process that I found much harder than getting in and also much more difficult than, you know, even covering the day-to-day -day sort of combat aspect of things. Um, this was, you know, the, the biggest hurdle um, that I had to kind of overcome. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you're, um, you essentially wound up, observing um the human wave of refugees from the inside of the pipe um and it sounds horrific 
to tell you the truth. I, yeah. You know, and then when you when them. you cross, there are just these people that are just sleeping like this sort of a big a big hole and just people, you know, women and children just everywhere, just on the ground on these tiny little mattresses um, that the the Polish border guards have set up. And there's just people like just like sleeping in this big hole all over the place. And it's just, yeah, it's a terribly sad, um, terrifying, daunting um, experience for people. And, and, and they don't know when they're going to go home again or when they're going to see their husbands or, you know, whatever that may be. And I can just imagine it's just, it's, it, how exhausting this is for everybody that's involved in it, just how, how draining it is. Yeah, well, it's um, shades of blitzkrieg and then yeah. the driving of populations away from the towns to clog things up. It's um, very cruel. Um, so you obviously made it back um, and uh, after probably even more tribulations of having to go through airline flights and stuff like that. And um, what was it like re-entering the U.S.? Um, I mean, look, I am always very, very riddled with guilt, leaving any country that I go to Um it's always incredibly difficult for me. It was, you know, it's a struggle with Afghanistan. It's a struggle with Ukraine. It's, it's, should I be there? Why am I not there? I need to go back. I need to go back now. Um, you know, it, it is, it's something that I feel incredibly guilty about um, being able to sort of leave and, and come back to the U S when so many people are, are living in, in such a dire straits and that things are so challenging. And I really feel um, that my heart is in these places and it's just, it's a, it's, there's so much anxiety that comes, it comes into it for me when I'm trying to, to leave a place, even though I know, you know, I can go back. It's, it's, um, you know, a temporary break, but it, it, there's so many emotions I think involved and you definitely leave so much of you there. Um, and so much of it occupies your mind. So I flew back into DC and again, you know, it's, a, it's a, my, my family's in Australia. And, and so I, I didn't, you know, it's for me, I, I don't typically when I'm, I'm sort of traveling in assignments, I usually don't have anybody to sort of pick me up from the airport. So that's always another kind of challenges is just getting myself through customs and then trying to get myself into a cab and, and, you know, and then I had the cab driver that just wanted to talk politics to me about some, some bullshit with the war. And I just, I had to just be like, you know what, dude, I need you to shut the fuck up right now because, you know, he's going on some sort of propaganda tirade to me. And I just, like I couldn't handle it. So, um, it's a challenge to come back. It's always nice to, to have a little bit of stability and routine and, um, being able to, you know, go to the gym and get good food and all of that. But it, it. It, you know, my, my attention and my heart is still very much um, in Ukraine. It's kind of like being in two different universes, isn't it? In terms of the perspective from the, what you were in a space of what, 36, 40, 40 hours worth of, uh, of time span. Um, that the, from, essentially being in the middle of it to people commenting on it from afar and seeing those two perspectives. Do you feel the distance between 
those two universes right now? Um, I think you always do. I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time, but the, the coming and going has been something I've somewhat adapted to. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's hard to leave a place, but, and it's especially hard to come back to a place that is, you know, it is fairly lonely for me. My, my US existence is, is a fairly lonely one. So that is probably a bit more of a struggle than anything. I think if I had family here or, or something, it, it may make the transition a little bit easier, but, um, but that's not my reality. So yeah, it is. It is a bit of a struggle going from a place that even though I am in a war zone, I'm usually surrounded by people. I usually, you know, have people that I can kind of call upon or, um, you know, be with or you're sort of, you know, constantly in the environment. And then when I come back, it's it's usually to, to um, sort of, uh, I guess, a much quieter and, and much more empty existence. And that has its own challenges, I think. And, and that's also part of the sacrifice you make to do this work is it's somehow, sometimes hard to build a, build a life in the U.S. when your attention is constantly, is constantly somewhere else. So um, some people are able to do that better than others. And it's not something I've, <laughs> I've been great at doing. Well, I don't think you do that badly. I mean, uh, you're, when, when all is said and done, I've known you for a while now. And, and, um, and, and there have been times I, I, I actually have picked you up at the airport and, and seen what you look like. You're, you, it's kind of interesting for people that have, uh, you're, you're extremely exhausted. And, uh, I think I picked you up once and you slept for almost 24 hours. Oh um, yeah. That was after I run. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, so yeah, it is, and it, it, it is exhausting and, um, and I get that. So, but this is your life. And, um, so now that you're here and essentially recharging your batteries, um, what do you think happens next? I mean, and you don't have to answer that question. In yeah, detail. I think I'm definitely planning to go back. It's just sort of a matter of when, whether I go back in two weeks or three weeks or a month, it just, um, I'm going to reassess where things are at, um, in a couple of weeks and, and see where the story's at. I think it's kind of a little bit stagnant at the moment, uh, which is probably why a lot of the journalists have kind of left for a break. Um, you know, obviously what's happening in Mariupol and other places is just tragic and horrible, but Kiev itself, um, uh, you know, I think there'll continue to be explosions and things there, but how quickly the Russians will be able to kind of encroach on that is really up in the air right now. Um, so I think it's sort of just a matter of reassessing the story as over the next couple of weeks and seeing where it's at and, um, you know, what I can do to advance it. Um, and so, yeah, just start making the decision, is this going to be over quickly or is this going to be a war like the war that I covered, you know, with, in Iraq and Syria with ISIS that, that, you know, I went in and out of for, for the four years. So is this going to sort of be, be similar to that and um, that it's going to be a matter of, of going in and out. Um, so it, it's really just unclear right now. Yeah. Well, there you go. This has been an interesting conversation to say the least. And uh, I'm sure that anybody that has uh, listened to this point has been as, I, I don't know, I'm fascinated. And I'm, I'm sure other people that are listening to this will be too. So, um, wow, uh, what a journey. And um, can't thank you enough for taking the time to um, just describe it in your own words for people to hear. But um, 
with that, I think we'll conclude this episode of Dispatches from uh, Ukraine in this instance uh, and um, hope to hear more in the coming days of uh, other things that you have uh, discovered and where your head is at. I mean, you know, uh, the, there are so many parts of the world now that you that, that you cover. You've got Afghanistan, which has changed probably very significantly since the last time you were there. And then Iraq, which is continuing to evolve. You've dropped in and out of there for years. And uh, and then now you have Ukraine as, uh, you know, the top hotspots. And, but that's not all of Holly McKay. You know, like I remember Myanmar, um, and other parts of the world that you've been to as well. Um, so let us know where your head's at as to where the next place is for you to observe ordinary people under dire circumstances. Thank you. Thank you for your support. All right. Bye.